Well, I'm so happy because um, I mentioned this earlier. I want those of you to know who are on the fringes right now that are sitting on the edges. Maybe the next time we meet, there's going to be prizes in the middle seats. I don't know. To just like reward people for sitting in the middle. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I'll pray about it. Let Jesus decide. Yeah. That's true. Oh, Evelyn. Wow. Way to mic drop on me. Thanks a lot. Okay. Fine. Never mind. You're just special, always. Um, we're going to edit all this out, right? No. Hey, um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be back. I'm really glad my friend Amanda's here. We're going to talk a little bit about the pages that she soaked um, this week. But before she starts, I want you guys to know something about this one. Um, she loves when I do stuff like this. Uh, it's so encouraging to us when we have young mamas who are, as I was talking last night to a couple of young moms last night, who were super encouraged by hearing from you, that they're like, they're like, we're just at this place of life where we're underwater. You know, we're at this place where we're just like so drowning and all these things and we can kind of see the surface and it's up there. And, <laughs> and, and for us old mommies too, and for those of the, that, are, that are older, young, that aren't moms, but just to realize that um, no matter what part of life that you're in, no matter how busy and, and, and crazy it seems, to be able to make room for him, I want you to know that that inspires us. So I'm glad that you're here. Um, and she laughed earlier. She's like, there's like spit up on my shirt. I'm like, that's even better. It's theatrical. It's perfect. It's my accessory. <laughs> um, so Amanda, which day did you, are you going to share with us? So I decided to share day one. Which is weird. That's what I said to her. I go, that's weird. <laughs> well, and last night I said, I'm going to share day one. And a couple girls went, huh. <laughs> That's like the introduction. Okay. So the reason I wanted to share day one is because, um, particularly when I got to that page this week, um, I was struck that it looks like a bunch of inconsequential stuff. It looks like fluff. Um, but I feel like soap has given me not only the tools, but the desire to figure out why those words are there because there are no wasted words and um, and I really like as you can see I got a lot from it and I just was hoping that that would be an encouragement um, because sometimes the stuff all the, the lists of begats and begots there's there's a message there too so that's why I picked day one awesome yeah that's what I said too I was like when she said that I was one of the people that was like so that's just the day of names. You pick the day of names. And she's like, oh, but I got something. It's so encouraging to think that when you look at the word that way and think, God, he has something to tell us, even in a list of names, right? So what did you title your day one soap page? My title was What You Mean to Me. What You Mean to Me. And then what scripture stood out to you or what translations? Or... So I pulled out each of the names and then the description next to the name. So I had um, Paul prisoner for Christ, Timothy, brother, Philemon, beloved and fellow worker, Aphia, sister, Archippus, fellow soldier, and then church in your house. Okay. And observations. You kind of listed some of them. They're descriptions, but what? go yeah. a little deeper with so us. So when I read this, it hit me that a lot of times when I'm talking to, especially my husband, um, but if I'm telling a story, even if it's about something that happened at Kroger. I give a description of the person. I'll give like a, a brief little descriptor to give context and to identify who I'm talking about. And so it kind of felt like 
Paul was doing here. Um, but instead of talking about them, he's talking to them. So it kind of felt like he was saying, Philemon, you are beloved, and you're also my fellow worker. But then it kind of goes further than just a description of who they are. I felt like it was more of a description of the relationship between Paul and that person. Um, and so as you all know, words like mother and father and sister and brother, they, they are a lot bigger than just one word. They encompass a lot of different, um, I, they encompass a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just the person who gave birth to my children, but, you know, all the other things that come with being a mom. So um, that was my biggest observation was that this is a description of a relationship. You're getting a picture of the relationship between Paul and these people. I love that. Did you get that much from day one? <laughs> or did you page just skip right past like I did? What about application? How did you choose to take that and then personally apply it? says a lot about that person's relationship with Paul. No two were the same, but each one helps you to know more about that relationship. Um, So then it kind of led me to think about my relationships with other people and how they describe me, what little words they use to describe me. But more than that, what words my Savior uses to describe our relationship. Um, And really, at the end of the day, like that's where I want my identity in what he says about our relationship and about who I am. Um, so then I had, I like to ask myself questions in the application part and not answer them. So mysterious, right? So then I had um, just some examples. Amanda, my beloved, my daughter, faithful servant, question mark, prisoner for Christ, question mark, soldier of the gospel, question mark. Um, so just like, am I living up to some of those descriptors that he uses? I love that. Well, what about your prayer? How did you finish out this day's lesson? Father, thank you for making a way. Thank you for Jesus and the gift of relationship with you. Thank you that because of Christ, my identifier is no longer Amanda Sinner, but instead Amanda Redeemed. Father, I so long to hear you say, Amanda, my good and faithful servant. So thank you for second and third and thousandth chances and for a Savior who made it so. Love your daughter and stumbling but faithful servant, Amanda. Thank my friend. You did it to me again. <clears throat> Every time she said, I've heard it three times, the prayer at the end, I'm like, I'm just going to sit here and weep for a minute. Oh, I love that. The thousandth chances, right? I love that he is the God of second chances but thousands of chances. Well, I'm glad to be back. I know that you were probably like, it was so fun to have Lauren up here. It was, it was refreshing. She was, she was cracking me up. When she said that she was, was praying more for me and my husband to return safely, she wasn't kidding. Like she kept saying, I just want you to know I'm praying for you to come home. Like really, and have a voice and be well. And, <laughs> but she did, she just gave me a thumbs up. She did a great job, didn't she? What a cool way to finish up Titus, to wrap it up. And she shared about how Titus was basically the framework for how to live a healthy Christian life. I love that. Like that's what that book was 
was. And then she gave us a little brief introduction into what we're going to read, this new letter, Philemon. And then she made jokes about how we all pronounce it all differently, right? So, and that's cool. Like I, I looked it up and I listened on Blue Letter and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get this right. And so I'm just going to say, I'm probably going to pronounce it a couple of different ways. I'm just, just going to say that in advance. I feel like we're forgiven for that. I don't feel like we're going to be in trouble. Um, but some of these names are not the easiest, but Regardless, she gave us a little introduction, but today I'm going to share some background to really get our context right as we continue into this letter. Um, this week we're going to talk about the background. We're going to break the letter out. We're going to cover like half of it because it's this big. What do you think about no chapters? Did you look at it and you're like, where's the num? There's no big numbers. <laughs> it's kind of weird, isn't it? Um, that's kind of fun because it's short and we can get to it quickly. Um, as I was looking at this, I thought about letters, and I know we've talked for almost, gosh, last semester. On this semester, we've looked at Paul's letters, and we've discussed how that's his legacy, right? His legacy for ministry was letters. Um, I found this quote, and I thought it was just such a fitting way for us to begin as we launch into this new letter. Um, this uh, Reverend Robertson Nikolai, he was uh, an editor of the Expositor's Bible Translation and probably an author, I would guess, based on this this quote, but he said this, and think about this for a minute. Think about the letters you've received in your life. And this is what he said. He said, if I were to covet any honor of authorship, it would be this, that some letters of mine might be found in the desks of my friends when their life struggle has ended. What a cool thing, way to think about your letters. That your letter might be one that somebody thinks so highly of that they put in their desk drawer and keep. And so, of course, as I'm reading that quote, I'm like, hey, that's super cool. I'm sitting at my desk. So I open my desk drawer and I'm like, I want to see what all I have in here. And so you know what I found? I found, and I wrote down a couple of them because I thought y'all would get a kick out of it. I found a note from my daughter when she was 10. And she had cut it out in the shape of a heart. And I don't even remember putting it in my desk drawer, but I had. I put it in there just to have it close, right? I found a scripture memory card from, are you ready for this? Some of you like weren't even a glimmer in your mother's eye in 1987 from my young life leader. And it was 1 Corinthians 10:31, and it ended up becoming my life verse, and I still had it in my drawer. And then I found a note from my mother-in-law who wrote me, I just looked at her. Don't do that, Chris. Wrote me this sweet letter of encouragement when I was teaching first, second, and third John. And it was so cool. I reread it. You know, I'm reading. I'm like, gosh, no wonder I kept this and I put it back. And then I found a note from one of you who encouraged me after something that she had gone through when we did Ephesians and shared with me the perspective that she gained from the time we spent together studying. I found a note from my mom from when I was in college. I found this note from my friend Amy See, it's in little pieces because I've opened it and closed it so many times and reread it and reread it from 20, uh, excuse, yeah, 2014 when I was writing a Bible study and she was praying for me every day. And so I thought, man, this letter Philemon feels like one of those letters, doesn't it? It feels like this personal letter that this guy received and he probably put it somewhere and kept it safe, don't you think? Like, it's bigger than these letters. I shouldn't say bigger. It was to me. It was so personal and, and, and real and showed such a relationship, more so than the big letters to an entire church. But it was just to this guy. And so as you go through this, I want you to think about, think about the letters that you keep, the letters that matter, and then think about this letter and how this must have felt to receive, okay? It's bigger than just a letter about forgiveness. It's a letter about the gospel, and I love that our Paul took the time to write it down. So 
with that. When you have your workbook, you remember like um, way back 100 million years ago, in lesson one, there was that page that had, I think it's 1-1, and you put all the, all the background about the book of Titus. Well, if you flip over to page 1-2, there's a page like that for Philemon. It was like a secret little page. And so if you wanna flip back there, you can, because that's what we're gonna go through. We're gonna go through the background about this letter, and then we're gonna launch straight into the first 14 or so verses of this letter. Background. So fun, I'm so nerdy, I love it. But here's the beauty of it, right? When you know the background, you understand the context. It's kind of like I just said, like we know that this is a personal letter. That's important for us to understand. We know that the name of the letter is Philemon and it's, it's named that because it was sent to a guy, a dude. It's important. Who wrote it? Paul, right? We kind of got that by now, right? It's kind of like the Sunday school answer. Jesus, well, yeah, Jesus wrote it, but Paul wrote it. Um, the Apostle Paul, he was appointed to be an apostle for Jesus Christ by who? Who appointed him to be an apostle on a dirt road? Jesus himself. I would say that's a legitimate title, wouldn't you? Well, he's an apostle for Jesus Christ, and he has a really rough past. And if you didn't join us in the beginning of the study, you'll know that first week of, of homework, we talk a lot about who Paul was, the old Paul. And we're going to talk about that again in a minute. But Paul's an apostle for Jesus, and he... His primary um, ministry was to the Gentiles, and those were people that didn't come from the Jewish descent. So Paul's the one who wrote it. When was it written? Interestingly, it was probably written between 60 and 62 AD. Do you know what else was written about that same time? The book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon were all written, we think, right about the same time. And that was when Paul was imprisoned in Rome. So when he's writing this, he's literally imprisoned for knowing and teaching the faith of Jesus Christ. Paul would um, be released later and write Titus and the two Timothy letters. And then within two to five years, he'd be martyred for his faith. So this is near the end of his life. This is probably a good, um, oh my goodness, 25 years after his conversion to be a Christian. So he's had a lot of life and a lot of ministry lived. So he's writing this letter at the time that he's in prison. Now, something to note about this letter, it's going to be delivered by a guy named Tychicus and a guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus becomes a main character in our letter, doesn't he? And we'll talk more about him in a minute. But I want you to think through this for a second. The way Paul did this is he wrote these three letters to, to Ephesus, the churches at Ephesus, the churches in Colossae, and then this personal letter to this guy. And he sends Tychicus and Onesimus, and he says, here, I want you guys to go deliver. And so Ephesus, I think I have a map if you want to put that up there, Christine. If you'll remember, Ephesus is like right on like the water and it was like this major place that everybody came and ships came and it was this huge, well, 100 miles inland, there's a little town called Colossae and that's where Philemon lives and that's where when you see the letter to the Colossians, it's going to the churches there. So what he has is he has Tychicus and Onesimus and they're gonna take this letter, the first letter they're dropping off in Ephesus and then they're gonna move on inland and they're gonna drop these two letters off in Colossae. So you know what's crazy about that? This is what got me, my, my mind started going. And forgive me. Picture it, okay? You got these two guys that are Paul's helpers, and they're taking these letters. One of the dudes that's delivering the letter 
is the one that's the subject of the letter to Philemon. So he's taking this letter to his former master. He's a runaway slave. He stole from him. He broke the law. And in some places, whenever a slave escapes and steals and runs away and they get caught, that's a death sentence. And so Onesimus is coming to his master and holding a letter and giving it to him. What does that even look like? Like that changed how I read this letter. Because I'm thinking about him standing there, like waiting for him to read it. Like, okay, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And that's what's crazy about this whole story. It's not just a letter. It's a letter that has huge impact, right? Paul wrote it, wrote it while he was in prison, had it delivered. To whom was it written? Well, I just said it's written to Philemon. Philemon. Um, He's not a pastor. He's a faithful guy. That's what he is. Um, What we probably think about him is that he probably met... Paul during his three years in Ephesus. It's probably when he was converted to Christianity. So he spent time with Paul, so Paul knows him personally. I don't know the details of their story, and I cannot wait. Like, all these letters have conjured up, I should write a big list, so that when I get to heaven one day, I sit down with Paul, I'm like, okay, bro, I got questions for you about all these people, right? But I'm so curious, what was their relationship like? Because it sounds like they were so tight, doesn't it? Well, the way the letter is written, in the very beginning it says it's from Paul, and then it goes into talking about how it's to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, verse 2, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. It's believed that that's his wife and his son. We don't know for sure, but that's what a lot of scholars believe. So the letter is addressing the whole family, but also did you see what happens in the last part of that verse? He says, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, to Aphia, to Archippus, and the church in your house. Okay, so there's big stuff that's coming down the pipe in this letter, like big, heavy, giant asks, right? And this is what makes me crazy. It's not like God just says, okay, we're going to do this big thing to this new believer, Philemon, and we're going to ask him to do something that's pretty impossible, but not only are we going to ask him to do it, Paul, we're going to ask him to do it, and we're going to make there be a bunch of witnesses so he's accountable to it. Don't you love when God does that to you? It's like you know that you're supposed to do something, and he's not just asking you privately. He's going to make sure that you understand that there are people watching. So what's the decision? So it's not, it's, while it is to Philemon, he also addresses his wife. He addresses his son, and then also the church that's meeting in his home. Interesting. Well, He's probably a wealthy guy. He has a house large enough to hold the Colossian church. And at the time, there were probably two different gatherings of people, two different churches meeting, and this was one of them. So it was happening in his home. He's a Roman citizen who, like most Roman citizens at the time, had slaves. Okay, What style was it written? It was a deeply personal letter, wasn't it? I mean, we get in the first seven verses or so, we're like, man, he loves this guy doesn't he? Paul's not a fluffy writer, is he? He gets right down to the point. He's very bold in the way he says things, but you definitely feel that it's very personal. This letter has been called Paul's masterpiece of persuasion. Did you get that? Where you're kind of like, Paul, you are setting him up. It's also been called Paul's politest epistle because he says such wonderful, gentle, sweet, precious things about his friend. Well, it's one of only three letters, if you consider Titus one letter. I guess you could say there's, two, there's four. But the letters that Paul writes specifically to people that are named specifically after their name. So there's Titus, First and Second Timothy, and then also Philemon. 
and the rest he's written to groups of people and to churches. It's broken out essentially into three parts. A lot of different people break it out differently, but you'll see that it's really kind of three parts. This is first part, verses one through seven, is kind of his, his appreciation. He's gonna pray. He's gonna give his little salutation. The next part, verses eight through 20, Paul's gonna appeal. And remember, he starts the appeal with, hey, I could command you, but I know you and I know your character, and so I know that I just appeal to you in brotherhood. And so we're gonna read about his appeal to Philemon, which is the gut of the letter. And then the end, he goes, verses 21 through 25, it's Paul's assurances to Philemon. It's his remarks. It's his, this is what you can hold me to, and this is what I wanna hold you to, and this is how we wrap it up. So it's every word of it matters, okay? Like Amanda said, every word from the very beginning matters. Well, central themes, central themes of this letter are fun, um, it's such a short little letter, but in my opinion, it has the biggest theme that we get in the entire New Testament, and I never knew this. You know, fun fact, um, why did I even choose to write about this letter? You know why? It's very biblical and very, like, you're just going to, it's so holy. Um, I just was like, hey, man, I've never studied that before, <laughs> so let's do it. Um, and it's so funny because as I started getting into it, I'm like, this might not have been the best choice. But, but just in this week alone, the things that he's shown me, and I hope that he's shown you, have confirm that this is something that we need to spend time with, right? Well, the central theme, there were a couple different things that you're going to see floating around, a couple words, and I would just, I would just you know, write them down so you see them when they come up. And one is this, um, you're going to see the term, and you may have looked it up in the Blue Letter Bible if you were doing your homework, where you're going to see him say um, the sharing of your faith or, or the partnership in faith. And, and it's really this idea of brotherhood in Christ, this brotherhood that is above position, okay? And the term for that, the Greek term is koinonia, koinonia, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. And that's a common theme throughout the book of Philemon. He's appealing to Philemon, not as just a guy, not as, as a guy who's wealthy. And he's certainly not appealing to him like, Paul, I know I'm above you, man. I'm going to command you to do stuff. He's appealing to him and saying, you're my Christian brother. We got to do this together. Okay, so you're going to see that theme over and over. You're also going to see the theme of agape love, agape love. And we've talked about that before. In the Greek, there's a bunch of different words for love. This word is, is the Christian love that's the highest form of love that has no end. The highest form of love, are you ready, that is not conditional based on circumstances. It characterizes a new life. This love, And so he's going to refer to that often when he's talking about the character of who Philemon is. And then lastly, you're going to see, obviously, the theme of forgiveness. There's going to be forgiveness. Now, I feel like I need to press pause for a minute and say something because if you hear nothing, I hope you hear this. Um, the thing that overwhelms me about the idea of forgiveness, and we're going to cover the whole forgiveness thing a lot deeper the next time we meet, which is not by the way, is not next week. Did you all know that? We are going on spring break. You can come. We won't be here. Just come and take a nap. It's fine. Whatever you want to do. Don't come next week unless you want to, I don't know, sweep up or take a nap. But when we return, we're going to cover the end of this book and we're going to really hit the whole forgiveness thing. So I hope that didn't scare you away. I hope instead it brings you back. But I do want you to remember this. If you walk out of here and think about the themes of this letter, remember that forgiveness is about being undeserving. 
And forgiveness is about extending grace to the undeserving. Forgiveness is not about the person who is undeserving coming to the forgiver and saying, I recognize that I am undeserving. Will you please let me earn my forgiveness? Because see, forgiveness is never earned. It's never earned. Now, consequences of forgiveness might be earned, right? Like reconciliation potentially could be earned, but forgiveness is just about the person who's forgiving and their Lord. And and I think that that's what we have to remember when he appeals to him on behalf of this Christian brotherhood. He's saying, because you are who you are in Jesus Christ, I am begging you, don't forgive him because he deserves it. The guy standing in front of you handing you the letter, forgive him because he doesn't. And forgive him because you've been forgiven for what you don't deserve. We'll talk about that more next week. But the letter is about forgiveness too. And the other thing, the main theme, I felt like was the key theme of the whole letter is this that the gospel transforms. The gospel transforms. You know, it's funny. When, when Paul's saying all this stuff, he's talking about forgiveness. He didn't even use the word forgiveness, by the way. He never even says forgiveness. He actually just defines it without ever saying the word, which is cool. But the idea that the gospel is what transforms, the gospel is what provides a will and a way to be able to forgive the unforgivable. The gospel is the only reason that we can love with the highest form of love that overrules all circumstances, right? That's it. And so the gospel transforms. How does it transform? And in this tiny little baby letter of like 24, 25 verses or whatever it is, we're going to see that the gospel can transform relationships, It can transform relationships. You're going to see the potential for alienation to go to reconciliation. And that's not a thing that we can just do. That's a thing that Jesus can do. We're going to see that only the gospel can take a bondservant and make him a brother, right? Because I promise you, as Philemon's reading this letter and Onesimus is standing in front of him, I guarantee you the things coming in his mind and in his heart are probably not, you know what, forgiveness is easy. We're good. We're going to be fine. I promise you it's not, right? Even when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this stuff is not easy. Transformation is hard. And so we're gonna see this beautiful appeal that that Paul's gonna make based on agape love, not on his authority as an apostle, but rather on the appeal that we both love like Jesus. And then the other thing you're gonna see, three things you're gonna see about what the gospel transforms, you're gonna see how the gospel can transform character. The gospel transforms character. Think about for a second. I mean, we have been hanging out with our Paul for a while, haven't we now? I mean, like a whole year we've been Saul Paul hanging out with this guy. Think for a moment about the transformation that's happened in his life. The author of the letter. You know him now as the new Paul. The one that oozes with gentleness and graciousness and sensitivity. And he's writing to his buddy. And he wants what's best and he loves Jesus, right? But remember old Paul? Do you remember old Paul? Old Paul, this is old Paul. 25 years ago, Paul, this is old Paul. Acts 8.1, Paul watched as Stephen was stoned to death and he approved it. Old Paul, 8.3, Acts 8.3, he was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women that he would put them in prison. Acts 9.1, Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then in 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul describes himself, his old self. He describes himself, these are his words, I was a blasphemer and I was a persecutor and I was a violent aggressor. See, 
only the gospel transforms character. And I guarantee the people that knew the old Paul and then knew the new Paul were probably like, I must hear of this Jesus because I see the difference, right? There's a transformation that couldn't have just happened. Well, we see this transformation in Onesimus too. We're gonna see that he, the new Onesimus is submissive to God. He returns willingly. He's ready to face whatever Philemon decides. Did you think about that? So if he's standing there with the letter, he doesn't have his running shoes on, right? Like he's not just gonna be like, okay, what's your answer? And then just, I mean, he's there. So whatever Philemon decides, Onesimus has to face it. He's guilty. Well, the new Onesimus is there willingly. He's free enough that he would even be willing to become a slave again. Free in Jesus, willing to be enslaved to a man. That's how free he was. Well, the old Onesimus, and we hear a little bit more about this in Paul's words, but he was probably, um, he, he was probably a begrudging um, worker for Philemon. I mean, he was a slave. I'm sure that wasn't like his ideal job description, right? But it was legal at the time. And so the fact that when he took off, he stole money to be able to take off and go to Rome. And what we're going to hear in a minute is the thing about this, when slaves ran away at this time, where they would run was Rome. And the reason they would run to Rome is because there's so many people and so much going on. They have the best chance of being lost forever if they go to Rome. And so here's this guy, he probably planned this whole thing so that he could take off and be lost. And then he got found, didn't he, by Jesus. He's reconciled to his savior now, the new Onesimus, but now he has to attempt to reconcile to man. And that's the hardest part sometimes, isn't it? We're going to see transformation. And then finally, we're going to see this cool evidence of transformation that occurs in the life of Philemon Listen, Paul is banking on the fact that this man's life is continuing to transform and that he's continuing to move toward Jesus. Did you think about that? Like he knew him back in the day when they were in Ephesus or whatever and they were all singing Kumbaya and hanging out or whatever they did. And now he, he, he's trusting the fact that he's continuing to grow. He's trusting the fact, did you ever, okay, let me say this. Did you ever um, read the story of the rich young ruler in the book of Mark? Okay, it stuck with me. You know why? Because I think we are all this guy sometimes. In the, in the book of Mark, in chapter 10, in verse 21 and 22, I mean, I won't give you the whole thing, but what had basically happened is you had this rich young ruler who approaches Jesus and says, hey man, so look at all the cool stuff I did for you. Like, I love God. I love you. I've done this and I've done this and I attend this and I go to this Bible study and my attendance record is this and I have all these things and I give money and I do and I all the things. And this is what Jesus says to him. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Don't you love that? That Jesus knows the heart of each of us, the sincere heart and the insincere, and he still loves him. And he looks at him and he, and he says this, one thing that you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler who just laid out like all these awesome things he did for God because he is such a good Christian. All these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned too much property. So he looks Jesus in the face and says, you know what? That's too much. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on and do my thing. He looked him in the face. And so I, I thought of that immediately because you know what I thought? I thought that's not who Philemon is. Because if, if Paul su suspected that Philemon was this kind of a guy, he would have commanded him 
rather than appealed to him, don't you think? It's like Paul just was gambling, like, I know this guy and I know the character and I know that it's transforming because of the gospel and I trust that he's gonna do the right thing. That's the change that's going on and it has gone on in this Philemon guy. Well, transform relationships, transform character, but also we're gonna get to see a glimpse of what could potentially be transformed community. Because think about it, remember he's, he's addressing Philemon, but he's also addressing his family and then all the people that meet in his home are gonna watch this whole thing unfold. Well, what is that gonna look like? Like, I mean, the thing that's kind of crazy is, is how is it gonna impact the church? How is it gonna impact society? Because he's gonna ask him to do something hard. He's gonna ask him to do something that's completely against what everyone else that has slaves would do. Well, how is it gonna impact everything? The gospel transforms. The gospel transforms. So with that little introduction to our tiny little baby letter, let's go ahead and open the book of Philemon and spend just a little bit of time um, digging into the first, oh, I don't know, 14 or so verses. And then go off to spring break. Sorry about that. Open your Bibles and we're gonna look at those first seven verses. I'm gonna start with the greeting. I kind of read that earlier. I want you to notice like, uh, like Amanda brought our attention to, these are specific people listed and there's specific relationships called out. It follows the traditional Roman letter format and that he says, this is who I am and this is who it's to and here's a blessing and then I'm gonna launch straight into this prayer. The first three verses, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, remembering he's imprisoned at the time under Roman, um, under Roman law, but he's imprisoned, why? Because of Jesus, because of Jesus. A prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. The reason he brings Timothy into the fold there is Timothy's probably with him at the time he wrote it. There's no reason to believe they, they co-wrote it. We think it was Paul, but Timothy's there with him. And for whatever reason, these people that are reading this may have um, a recollection of Timothy and it may matter to them somehow. So he's listed as well. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's standard greeting, isn't it? In verses four through seven, then he goes into thanksgiving and prayer, and he says this in verse four, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your faith and that you, ha that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Verse seven, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. There's so much in those three verses that tell us so much about that relationship, don't they? We see that, we, the, the, that Paul is hearing about this agape love that, that Philemon shares with other people, the love and the faith that he shares, that only God type of love, the kind of thing that you don't just do and then you go live a different life. Like this is legit, right? This is real, authentic love. And so he says, not only do I, have I experienced that, but I hear about it. What a cool thing to hear. That's his reputation, he goes on and says, I see that you have faith and love toward Jesus, but also toward who? What does it say? Toward all the saints. 
all the saints. And when you see the word saints, remember, what does that mean? That's the meaning, the believers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are considered a saint. And that's who he's speaking of. He's saying that the love and the faith that he shows isn't just toward his God, it's toward the people of God, which are the hard ones to love, amen? But this is who Philemon is. He goes on then in verse um, six, and he uses that term koinonia. He's talking about sharing the results, essentially, of common faith and common life that believers have. Here's the thing. This idea in verse six, it's the foundation. It's the groundwork for Paul's appeal. He's saying, because of who you are in Jesus, because of who I am, and we're doing the work together, I'm going to make this appeal to you. He then says that saints are refreshed through Philemon. Refreshed, I looked that word up, I don't know if you did, and I found it's to give rest. It's to cease movement or labor so that we can recover strength. Wow, right? Like, can you imagine if somebody comes up to you and says that? Like, there's something about you that gives me rest. There's something about you that builds strength in me. I, 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 I kind of always, I don't know, I don't even know if I ever read that sentence in my whole, in my whole life, honestly. But when I read it this time, I thought, man, what a compliment. And when we know Paul, Paul is not joking around. Like he's telling the, the truth, right? And so for him to have that reputation is powerful. So he tells him, that's who you are. Well, okay, this, this is how I looked at this. And you know how my mind works. It's a little questionable at times. But I have a background in technical writing and business writing. Like that was my real life job, as my kids say. Your real life job, like you did for like real and, and one of the principles of having that real life job is when you sit down to write something, some directions or instructions or content or whatever, you have to hack, ask yourself this question. There's this principle, and it's, the, it's W-I-I-F-M principle. Has anybody heard of it before? No? I love that. That's just so, I feel like I'm back in school. Um, that principle is this. There's five of the most important words that you ever ask when you're writing a business writing or technical writing. There's five words, and the words are this, because this is what the person reading it needs to know. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's the principle. Every time you sit down and write something, you have to ask yourself, the person that's going to read it, they need to have that answered right away, or they're going to flip right past your manual and skip it. What's in it for me? And so as I was reading this letter, I thought, you know... We don't want to just jump straight to application every time because we want to understand what it actually says. But we also want to understand what is in it for me. Like, I get it. You know, Paul's writing this letter to his buddy and they're talking about the slave and all this stuff and forgiveness and blah, blah. All this stuff's going to happen. It's cool. Well, what is it? What's in it for me? Like, how do I apply this to my life? And so what's in it for us? What's in it for us? What does Paul tell us in this first section? What is in it for us? It's this that we need to affirm the value of other people, that we need to affirm the value of others. And this one I love, and we need to pray for them, but here's what's cool about what Paul does. He didn't just pray for him. he said, I prayed for you, and this is what I prayed. So we pray for others, and then we tell them we did it. And, and, and the cool thing is, like last night, one of my friends, one of my buddies came last night, and she's been my prayer partner. She's actually the one who composed this masterpiece, um, she came and surprised me last night and sat right there on the front row. And, and I looked at her and I thought, that's a great example because she will text me randomly in the middle of just something and she'll say, I'm praying for you right now. And you know what's super cool about that? What I know about my friend Amy? She's not lying. <laughs> she really, really is praying for me. And sometimes if she has time, she'll say, I'm praying for you right now and this is what I'm praying. 
And I don't know if you have people like that in your world, but if you don't have people like that in your world, be that person in someone else's world. Be the Paul that tells them, I'm praying for you and this is what I'm praying. And don't expect a response and don't look for anything out of it because all you're doing is trying to lift them up, right? I love that about Paul. So in this letter, we get that right off the bat. Affirm others and then pray for them. And, the, and, and then in, when it comes to Philemon, what are the things that, that we get out of what Philemon did? Well, here's what we can, what we can glean from that is we want to be the people that extend love and faith. That's who we want to be, right? I want to be the person that when this is read, that people think of me. People that really know me like the real me, not like the fake me. Extend love and faith and then be a source of refreshment for others. What a gift to have someone say, you know what? You give me rest and you strengthen me and make me want to go out and do the work of the gospel. Wow, right? Like if God could use us to do that for each other, man, we're an army. Well, Paul moves from this first part of the letter from appreciation. He goes straight into the appeal and there's a lot to cover. And so today we're going to cover a little part of it. And then next time we meet, we're going to go over a lot more of it and the meat of it. But um, I did want to get into it with you today. So if you would look at verse eight and we're going to start there. Paul is now requesting this appeal. Now, something to remember while we're reading this, and I know it seems like a you know, dead horse we're beating, but slavery at the time was legal. One in three people in the Roman Empire are slaves. Six million slaves in the Roman Empire. Like the majority of the people working, they're working all varying degrees of work. Some of them are doctors and lawyers and some of them are, are doing the, the, the difficult physical labor. Some of them have situations and circumstances that are exceptional and their families are taken care of and they're in a good position and some of them are not. But this is the reality of what's happening. Think for a minute, if you would. Okay, you read your homework. You know what the appeal is. You know what he's going to ask him, okay? So just think for a second. You got this guy who's this wealthy guy in the Roman Empire, and he's got slaves, but he's also a Christian. And, and Paul's about to ask him to do something that is crazy, okay? Even for a Christian, it's nuts. It doesn't happen. And so essentially, he's going to have to convince this man and an entire church that he was immersed in that, that this cultural acceptance of slavery, they need to set that aside and that they're going to have to change their cultural viewpoint and practice Christian truth that all people are equal in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And that's from Colossians 3.1, which he also incidentally talks about a lot when he sends the letter to the Colossians. He's going to have to say, we have to treat everyone equally. That's what the gospel's about. And not only that, we have to enforce this and we have to love one another and we have to do it in spite of what culture says. That's gonna be radical, you know? And so when, when, you, when you read this, don't just read it as, as just black and white words. You read it and think about what he's asking, the implications that are involved, because it's big. Well, the appeal, it's broken out into five different parts, really. And I'm, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read every verse, but I am going to kind of push through quickly. The first part of this appeal that's broken into five parts is based on this, on verse 8. Paul is recalling Philemon's character. He's talking about his reputation. He's saying, I'm asking you to do this because I know who you are. I know who you really are. He uses that word accordingly in verse 8. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do this, what is required, yet for love's sake, 
I prefer to appeal to you. In other words, he's saying, because I know what I just said in verses four through seven, that's who you are. I know that I can appeal to you. I don't have to command you to do anything because you're gonna do the right thing. Right thing's hard sometimes, isn't it? I, I, I can't imagine how hard this was this is, this is thousands and bazillions of years of culture that he's asking him, hey, yeah, but Jesus overrules all of it. So do the hard thing. He's not a rich young ruler. He's not going to turn his back. And Paul knows that. He's giving him an opportunity to be refreshing to this slave. He's giving him this whole Jesus thing and having him take a step further past the easy and obvious because it's, at this point, it's probably really easy to show love and faith toward those who are sitting in your circle, who are your same social belief system and your same, um, you know, they're, they're your people. But all of a sudden he's saying, no, I'm gonna ask something bigger of you. He's, he's asking him based on Philemon's reputation. Secondly, he, he brings up the point that Paul's personal situation is part of this. I'm asking you because I'm an old guy and I am in prison. Here's what's funny about that. When I first read that, I'm like, God, how old was he? He was probably 60. <laughs> Not that old, please, thank you. Um, but he was beaten and battered for the cause, wasn't he? I mean, he probably, his 60 was probably a rough 60, Amen. And he's saying to this guy who has love for him personally, this is what I have done. This is what I have endured. And I'm asking you on behalf of our brotherhood, don't miss opportunity. Philemon's reputation, Paul's personal situation. And then thirdly, he's asking him on behalf of the fact that Onesimus has been converted to Christianity. Now, this is important. Don't check out. This is crazy. When I started doing some research here, I want you to think about this. His name means useful. And Paul's like a comedian in verse 11. I think he's like, hey, he used to be useless. Now he's useful, whatever. Kind of funny. But his name actually means useful. It was a common slave name at the time. This is what's interesting to me. To me, we have this guy who's a fugitive slave and he's facing capital offense, okay? Regardless of what I think is right or wrong about their laws, that's a fact. He stole money. He escaped to Rome because he wanted to get swallowed up and never found. And Jesus found him. In the midst of the lostness, he found him. And, and this is what's crazy. This is all about God's sovereignty because you know what's really weird? It wasn't like there was this planned meeting. How did this slave, this random slave who ran to this giant, enormous, crazy metropolis trying to be lost, find Paul? Find Paul who was already friends with the slave owner. And what did that look like? I mean, let's think about it. Paul is imprisoned. So I don't even know, did they meet in prison? Did Onesimus end up in prison? I don't know. Did he come help him? We don't know. All we know is Paul says, he helped me. And he's like a son to me now. God is so cool, man. I don't know if there's things in your life. I, well, I, I mean, there are things in your life and you may not call them what they are, but they are the sovereignty and the providence of God. And in this moment, in this situation, we can't miss it. That, that God brings this lost criminal this lost slave to a place and finds him and chases him down. It's so cool, right? So he helped Paul while he's in prison. We don't really know the details. We know that Paul refers to him as a son in the faith and he's now asking Philemon to consider him a brother in Christ. He was your slave, but now he's your brother. What are you gonna do about it? Who are the people in our worlds, right, that we position and we set off to the side and then now they're brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ and then we still just want to, we just want to keep the same comfortable place. 
And he's calling us to not be that person. Conversion didn't erase the debt that he owed. And that's the thing I love about Paul too. Paul never one time said, yeah, he, he didn't do the right thing, but you know what? Let's just ignore it and forget it. You know what Paul said? He said, no, he, he, he's guilty and he has a debt that he owes to you. And you know what Paul says to him? And we'll see this later. He says, but I'm going to take his debt for him. Still is going to be paid, but I'm going to take the debt because I love him this much and that's who he is in front of Jesus and that's who he needs to be in front of you, Philemon. Martin Luther says this, it's one of my favorite quotes I found. Martin Luther said this about this whole letter. He said, all of us are Onesimuses. That's who we are. We are guilty. And, and nothing we do can ever take away our guilt and our undeserved guilt. Well, Number four is that Onesimus' value to Paul's ministry would help him make the decision to agree to the appeal. That's what Paul's hope is. He wants him to understand he was formerly useless and now he's useful and that it matters. You know what's cool is that we know this about Philemon. Philemon loves Paul and his ministry because why? Because it changed him. Think about the people, whoever that is. Did somebody bring you to Bible study? Did somebody introduce you to Jesus Christ? Whoever that is, they matter to you, right? Their ministry is important to you because it's precious to you, because it changed everything. And so Philemon knows that, he, that Paul is precious to him. It's not like, like I was laughing with the evening class. I'm like, you know, I get these phone calls from, from, I went to tech. I get the phone calls from the business college asking me for money. Number one, I was not a business major. So let's start there. No. And, and I'm, it's not a cause I believe in. I'm an English major, but the English department never calls me. So that's a whole nother thing. But anyway, the business school calls me, asks me for money. I'm not giving you any money because I don't believe in your cause. But that's not the case with Philemon, right? Like his whole world was changed because of this cause. And that's why Paul is confident. And the last thing we'll cover next time we're together is the providence of God. And we'll dig deeper into that. The providence of God as believers, we lean in on God's sovereignty instead of rationalizing and excusing away coincidences or luck because there's no such thing. What's in it for me? What, what is in it for me when it comes to this second part, this appeal? Well, whenever possible, as Christians, we, we appeal instead of command, right? Do you love that Paul's heart? Remember Paul? He was, we talked about him a minute ago, this aggressive, crazy, bold Paul, but now he is appealing in love to his fellow brother. I bet you he has a lot more power in the appeal than in the command, don't you think? Remember that we are all Onesimus. Don't ever forget who you are, but don't forget whose you are. And then lastly, that being transformed to Christ has a cost, but be willing to bear the cost. The cost of this decision, what's happening in this situation is gonna cost everybody. It's costing Paul because he's gonna take on the debt that's owed from Onesimus to Philemon. It's costing Philemon because reputation and who knows what else is gonna happen after he makes whatever decision he makes. It's gonna mess up the church somehow because there's gonna be some people who are not gonna like whichever decision he makes. Onesimus is going to be affected. There's a cost for him because essentially he could have stayed on the run and been free and sang about Jesus, but not gone back to face the reconciliation that he's responsible for. It's a cost, not cheap. Well, in closing, I, I just, 
as you continue on, you have two weeks to do the homework to finish the lesson. So if you didn't get to this first part, man, go back. Because this letter, I didn't even know how big it is. It's so big. It's small, but big. But I want you to consider this as you're reading through the last half of this letter and we come back and talk about it in in two weeks. Think about this. Paul never, ever minimizes Onesimus' sin. Never. There's never a question that there was sin. And Paul placed Philemon face-to-face with the one who doesn't deserve forgiveness. Philemon didn't ask for that, did he? But here he is with the power, and he's the one that has to make the decision. Paul didn't ask for cheap grace. There was a cost to everyone involved. And Paul didn't request Onesimus' consequences to be reduced. He requested that they be transferred to Paul. Do you recognize the story? I'm going to read this little thing that I wrote when I was thinking about me and this letter and what it means to me and what's in it for me. And and I don't know if you relate to it like I do, but will you just think about yourself as I'm reading through this and ask yourself, is this what God wants you to know today about who he is and what he's asking of you? And then we'll close. God created me to serve him. He's my rightful owner and my master, but like Onesimus, I rebelled against him and I said, I will not have this master rule over me. And so I took everything he gave me, my body, my intelligence, my talents, my passion to use for him. And I squandered them on my own selfishness and my whole, yeah, but I deserve this. And I took off and I claimed to be free from God, but I became a slave to sin. And like Onesimus, I was condemned as a fugitive on the run. I was useless, hopeless, guilty, and indebted to him because I had robbed God. But even as God had his sovereign hand on Onesimus, he did the same with me. In due time, while I was deliberately running in the opposite direction of God, he providentially led me across the path of someone who shared the gospel with me. And at first, I was afraid of dealing with God because I knew I was guilty and I was lost. And I thought, how could I possibly return to God and stand before him in light of all the things that I've done on the run? And then the Savior said, don't plead your own case. Don't say a word on your own behalf. Don't attempt to justify yourself. You're guilty. You're guilty as charged. But just give the master your letter. Our sin can't be minimized. We are undeserving. What Jesus did is not cheap. We are all Onesimus. Pray with me. Father, um, Philemon gets it, and Paul knows he gets it. Do I get it? Do I understand I don't feel like I do, and I feel often, I I feel like I am on the run from you. Even though I know my salvation is secured, Lord, I am on the run. And and I pray today that your sovereignty will pluck me out of the crazy busyness of my own personal realm and draw me back to you, Lord. Whatever that looks like, I'm guilty. Um, God, I want to be known for love and faith, and I want to love you well, and I want to love all the saints well, but I don't do that well. And so you know that. Will you, will you show me how to do that? Will you show me the places I need to be a refreshment to others, Lord, instead of a detriment? And God, will you show me that above all, that I am undeserving, but I am redeemed because of your son, and not because of anything I do, 
but only because of you. So Father, we thank you for this deep, amazing, heavy, giant, enormous, tiny little letter. And I thank you for all the souls in this room and those who are listening online and those who can't be with us today. Will you remind them of how loved they are and that they are your redeemed if they know you as Savior, Father. And if they don't, that you're standing there ready to take on every piece of guilt that they face. Father, we love you, that you love us that much, even when we are a mess and on the run. Chase us down, find us. In Jesus' name, amen.